Now I'm thrilled to introduce our speaker, Jen Halls. She's a systems designer in the Design for Learning studio at IDEO. If you're not familiar with the work that IDEO does to improve and enrich the design of things, this next hour is going to be a great one. I use many of these practices and concepts that have been developed by IDEO in the design thinking courses that I teach here at USM. And I'm so delighted that Jen Halls is here with us today. Jen brings a range of experience, improving outcomes for students and teachers across the education sector. She taught Algebra II in Memphis, helped reimagine human resources at the Boston Public Schools with a focus on efficacy and equity, and led impl implementation training, product management, and marketing at an EdTech startup, and supported districts through internet infrastructure upgrades to make digital learning accessible to students. Jen also has an insatiable entrepreneurial spirit. She runs a photography business, launched a fast casual sushi restaurant with three friends, and started a photography program for survivors of domestic violence. Jen holds an MBA from UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and a BA in Public Policy from Duke University. Please join me in welcoming Jen Halls from IDEO. Great. Thanks so much, Fred, and hello, everyone. Super excited to be here today. Let me get my screen sharing set up and we'll jump in. All right, I believe you all should be able to see the slides now and I will get started. Okay, so we are here today to talk about the power of co-design in the face of ambiguity. Just to give you a little bit of a preview of what the next hour or so will look like, I'm gonna share a brief overview about IDEO. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about two different case studies of projects that I worked on that show how co-design can show up in completely different contexts. Um, and then I'll close out with giving you some practical tools and resources that I mentioned throughout those two case studies uh, that I hope will give you some inspiration that you might bring to your own work. Uh, and then if there is time, we'll have a couple minutes for Q&A at the end. And so a little bit of IDEO to kick us off. Um, our mission is to create positive impact through design. We work across industries and markets. We've been around for over 30 years uh, and we bring expertise in designing pretty much anything you can imagine. Products, spaces, systems, services, brands, and even organizations. As Richard mentioned, my expertise is in the learning space. Uh, and this is pretty broad, actually, it ranges from K-12 all the way through lifelong and adult learning. And so I've gotten to work on some really amazing projects like reimagining the future of the MBA program, designing a learning experience for higher education leaders of public four-year institutions, and building out innovation capability in a government agency. So. When we say learning, anything uh, can, can count as learning. And so there is quite a breadth of projects. I'm excited to share a couple with you today. Uh, another defining feature of IDEO is our cross-disciplinary approach. Um, as Richard said, I'm a systems designer, but we have tons of different disciplines on our teams at IDEO. This could include architects, business designers, creative coders, communication designers, researchers, 
uh, industrial and mechanical engineers, writers, uh, and that's just scratching the surface of the range of skill sets that folks bring to IDEO. And we really think that this disciplinary approach and these the way that teams are structured helps us approach problems from many different angles and perspectives. Uh, this kind of cross-pollination of different backgrounds and training and skill sets can give us unique insight to better inform new and novel solutions to our biggest complex challenges that we face. So we all bring vastly different backgrounds to the work. Uh, the thing that really unites us all uh, and allows us to be so collaborative in, in a team setting is our values um, and IDEO's culture. Um, you can find these online. We have a, a little book of values, but our, our seven core values are first to be optimistic, believe in the possibility of innovation and new solutions, uh, collaborate, already talked a bit about that one, embrace ambiguity. We're going to be speaking a lot about that today um, and kind of leaning into uncertainty and, and trying to use design as a way forward. Learn from failure. Um, test, build to learn, try things out, see working and, and iterate quickly. Make others successful. This is one of my favorites, uh, always having an eye out for how we can make teammates successful, make clients successful, anyone else that we're working with, looking for opportunities for different people's skill sets and superpowers to shine. Take ownership. Um, there's a lot of hand raising, like I can try that, I can do that. Um, people really are eager to uh, bring their diverse backgrounds and, and apply them to the project in different ways. Uh, and then finally, talk less, do more. That is probably my favorite one. Um, we really have a bias toward getting tangible quickly. Um, and so when we have questions that we want to ask, we'll often express as a prototype, which could be a sketch or a wireframe or some mock-up that makes it easier for people to give authentic answers to our questions and give us feedback. So you'll see a little bit of that in these case studies as well. Um, also with interdisciplinary teams, odds are with all those different backgrounds represented, when we're all talking about the same thing and using the same words, we probably have different pictures in our heads. Uh, and so a simple sketch can really help us do more and get further uh, and kind of get on paper what we're all thinking about. And so at our core, the approach that unites us is called design thinking. Um, and this is built on the idea that true innovative solutions require a balance of desirability, feasibility, and viability. And so we always start with understanding people. What is desirable from a human point of view? What do people want and need and care about? Uh, what motivates them? And then we bring in the lenses of business viability. How can things be you know, economically sustainable and then technology, technological feasibility. So what is actually possible uh, given the limits of technology? And so instead of relying on large numbers of people to do a kind of big quantitative research, we actually perform rich ethnographic research that is focused on better understanding human needs, why people do what they do, um, kind of beyond their observable behaviors to really unpack and understand their core beliefs. Um, okay, and so the next thing I wanna talk a little bit about is going deeper into that ethnographic research. Um, 
we both listen and observe. And a key factor that drives our work is often knowing that, you know, what people say and what they do can be different at time and can be at odds. And so in addition to interviewing people, we often will visit in their homes, we'll sit down with people, we'll, um, you know, go along as they go shopping or go about their daily activities to really get a deeper understanding of their needs and what their day to day is like. Uh, and so this photo here, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, a previous IDEO team was working with a global pharmaceutical company and they were looking for innovations in the field of care for chronic illness. And so they were in this woman's home, uh, an 85 year old woman with rheumatoid arthritis. And they, you know, seeing from her hands, they, they could notice how the arthritis was impacting her hands and her ability to do certain things. And so they saw a long row of pill bottles out on her counter and asked her, you know, do you ever have any trouble opening the pill bottles? And she said, no, not, not a problem at all. And so kind of surprised by that answer, the researchers asked if she could show them how she opened it. And so she promptly showed them into her kitchen uh, and turned on her bread slicing machine with a high speed stainless steel blade that you can see pictured here. And she saw the plastic cap right off. Uh, and so I share this story just as an example of oftentimes people have really created super effective hacks in their lives such that they don't even um, see certain things as pain points for them. And so would an easier cap to remove probably help her? Yes. Uh, but she had developed this really effective workaround. And so we often look to those hacks or workarounds that people have developed as inspiration for us to design. Another place that we often look for inspiration is actually outside of the industry or context that we're working in. Uh, it's pretty common to kind of look at, you know, what are our competitors doing? What are the leaders in our same space or industry doing? Um, but we actually look outside of the sector and say, where has a similar problem been solved before? Uh, this is something that we call analogous inspiration. So looking for analogs similar contexts or environments um, where we might learn something. And so if you look at these two photos here, you see a car racing pit crew and a hospital operating room. Uh, on the surface, these seem like very different <laughs> contexts and scenarios uh, and working environments. Um, but when you think about it a little bit more, they're both really stressful, high pressure environments where timing is everything and coordination is really critical. Uh, and when you view the through that lens, you can think, okay, maybe we could actually learn about, um, you know, the way that the pit crew approaches a car as it comes in, and maybe the hospital team could learn something about streamlining processes um, that they could take back into their own work. And so, again, looking outside of our industry or organization for pockets of innovation and, and thinking about how do we distill problems into their core and look for ways that they have been solved uh, elsewhere to get a much needed shift in perspective. And then lastly, this is really uh, speaks to what we're going to chat about today. Um, we believe that making it together always makes it better. And so the big, gnarly, complex challenges that are facing today's leaders, we know cannot be solved by a single person or even a single department or organization. When we come to new challenges, we show up with a lot more questions than answers. Um, IDEO is 
great at asking a lot of really detailed probing questions, but we very rarely come with a perspective or a point of view of what the solution is going to look like. Um, instead, we take an equity-centered community design approach that attempts to shift power dynamics or really designing with people and not for people. Uh, and this approach I see as especially relevant in today's environment with so much uncertainty, so much ambiguity, no one has answers, um, especially leaders. And so I really believe that now is the moment for co-design to open up uh, the possibility for answers to come from anywhere within an organization. And so these next two case studies are gonna show how co-design shows up in two very different contexts. So the first story I wanna share is about Lakeland Community College. Lakeland is a school that is located outside of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and they opened their doors in 1967 to just over a thousand students. They have grown considerably since then. Um, they now serve over 250,000 students, uh, but they have really stayed true to their mission about providing quality learning opportunities to meet the social and economic needs of the surrounding community. The employees at Lakeland, um, they have all been there for 10, 20, 30 years. They're extremely committed to showing up for students um, and they really feel this ownership and shared responsibility for student success. At the same time, every year they know that the needs of the students that they're serving have evolved and shifted and the college has to adapt to be able to uh, continue to deliver on this mission. And so I'm gonna share a couple stories of students that we talked to. Um, we really heard that students come to Lakeland to create a better life for themselves and for their families. Um, here's a quote of one student who talked about how she was surrounded by negativity in her life and she wanted to come to Lakeland to make a change and make a difference. Um, and that is what Lakeland and community colleges broadly really care about, giving students more choices and more opportunities. We also know that students, um, we've seen this even exacerbated in the last year, uh, students face significant barriers to college completion. There is a whole range of barriers like school related things like academic challenges or issues with transfer credits uh, or having to repeat developmental education courses. And then there's also personal challenges that come up like caretaking or the cost of tradition actually getting to campus. Um, dealing with mental health challenges or housing uncertainty. This student uh, that's pictured here had a personal trauma where she lost her brother that really impacted her ability to persist in school. And we have certainly seen uh, since Lakeland opened its doors, the challenges of students that students face have evolved. Um, while the supports that Lakeland offered have largely remained the same for 50 years. Um, the same departments still exist, people are in the same roles, and a lot of the services being offered to students um, now feel kind of antiquated. And so this is not just unique to Lakeland, this is true of many higher education institutions, um, and the structure of the organization just has not adapted to keep up with the changing student needs. And so in the fall of 2018, uh, Lakeland came to us with this question. 
how might we reimagine student support to be effective, inspiring, and most importantly, student-centered. And so we embarked on a project with them to work alongside more than 200 current and former students, employees, and faculty to imagine and co-create how to best meet the needs of today's students. Through our research and conversations with all those stakeholders that I mentioned, uh, we had one really big key insight emerge. The problem was not the availability of student support services, but actually the under coordination of what existed. They had over 20 student service departments, um, ranging from financial aid to, um, you know, counseling and academic support. Uh, and the people that worked within each of those uh, groups had the best intention and again, like really deeply cared about serving students. At the same time, and this is something we often see uh, in large systems, every individual could only see their own slice of the system and really could only optimize for their own interactions. And so what that means is they weren't able to see things like a student visiting three different departments and getting told three different things or a student showing up with a form and being told, nope, you can't turn that in here, go to this department, and then getting told to go down the hall and then getting told. And that really frustrating experience of the system is something that only the students saw. And so with this insight, we saw this as an opportunity for co-design uh, and for kind of bridge a gap between all of the different stakeholders at the Lakeland ecosystem uh, and thinking about new ways that they could collaborate with each other. And so our big goal here was really to help members of the Lakeland community better understand what it's like to be a student today. And so based on these stories from a wide range of students that Lakeland serves, including ones who had stopped out, uh, current students, former students, we designed an immersive experience that would highlight what students felt and went through um, as they went on their journeys through Lakeland. In particular, we were looking at what are the things that uh, accelerate them and help them move forward in their journeys? And then what are the setbacks that keep them from persisting? This exhibit was actually modeled after the game Shoots and Ladders, if anyone remembers that game, um, where often chance encounters where whatever you happen to land on either pushes you ahead or takes you back. Um, and the reason that we set it up like this was that we had hundreds of Lakeland employees and students and community members go through. And rather than telling them, how students were feeling, they actually got to feel it themselves and they got that experience of being propelled ahead and being pushed back. Uh, and we closed out this exhibit with an invitation to co-design and to imagine a better future for Lakeland students. And so now I'll share just a few of the moments um, in this journey that we wanted to shed light on. The first one, is information overload. I think something that probably resonates with all of us uh, right now, but for students from the moment that they enroll, they start getting messages from departments across campus. Remember there's over 20 of them um, with tons of important information like opportunities, deadlines, services, clubs, other things they could get engaged in. Um, many students that we talk to experience just overload from all of the forms and brochures, posters, and then they start tuning out, um, even though these are really well-meaning efforts to get students information they need, 
it's actually super overwhelming and it's really hard to figure out what is relevant and what do I need to prioritize right now. Um, one of the fun parts of this project is that a researcher on our team actually signed up to be a student at Lakeland and went through the orientation process as part of our research. Uh, and so this image that you see here, which we called the wall of forms, um, these were all of the pieces of paper and brochures and flyers that shot in her first week on campus. And so you can see the sum of the system is just completely unwieldy, uh, even as each department thought they were being reasonable in what they were providing to students. And so looking at this um, helped, you know, as people were going through the exhibit, they were like, wow, I can't believe we give all of this to students and expect them to figure out how to prioritize and what actions to take. And so this made us pose the question, how might we coordinate and streamline communication to students? Another moment that we heard a lot of students talk about is um, this idea of lost in translation. We know that every profession has its own jargon, like special words that can be really helpful shortcuts to convey meaning. Uh, but it also can really alienate students that are new to campus, making it confusing to get stuff done um, and also reinforcing feelings that they might be having that they don't belong or they feel insecure. And then you see a bunch of words that are unfamiliar and you're expected to know what to do. Uh, so this made us wonder how might we simplify the language that we use to ensure that students feel that they belong here. Then another big moment is self-talk, the voices that uh, students heard in their heads and the stories that they told themselves as they uh, first began their journeys on campus. Many students expressed that they had moments where they doubted their ability to succeed in college. Uh, they would question their place at Lakeland and often if they had one misstep or they you know, had an issue with registration or something, uh, they would interpret that as them not being cut out for college. And so this inner soundtrack of self-defeating thoughts can really become isolating when students are wondering, are they the only people that are experiencing this? And so these clouds shared some stories we heard, um, things like, am I getting A's just because I'm taking easy classes? I wish I'd known I'd be the oldest person in this class. And I feel like everyone's looking at me like, wow, you must have really screwed up. Everyone else seems to know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Did I miss something? Um, and so this made us wonder, how might we help students foster a sense of belonging and build their confidence to persist? So there were many more moments throughout the exhibit. Um, and I think this is really shared as um, a video in the voices of the stakeholders at Lakeland. So I'm going to share a quick video clip that highlights how the community experienced this exhibit together. Creating an exhibit in which individuals can go through a student life journey and look at and experience what it feels like to run into a roadblock, to hit a barrier. The main thing is that you're not alone. Everyone else is, you know, everyone's going through something. So I hope that people here at work at Lakeland see this and they go, okay, yeah, we need to change something up a little bit. I have to go back to start. It was frustrating. It very much reminded me of my first semester of college. I've kept taking classes, failing classes, not getting ahead. It very much seemed like that. 
the whole not getting the email for the FAFSA, that happened to me once and I didn't, I couldn't start school. So it was just like, yeah, those things really do happen to people, so. Picked up the card and it said, uh, bad time management can impact your grades. I'm like, oh, well, that has happened to me. And what did I do? I went back. <laughs> they self-looked it. They, they thought it was an excellent way to, instead of being told what the students are feeling, they actually felt how the students were feeling. Going through this process and, and hearing all these stories of students has been really powerful for me. Instead of someone saying, this is what college students feel like, the college students are actually saying, this is what's happened to me here and it's being addressed. It would be great if the community came to experience this because we all need to see from other people's perspectives. We need to see what it is that they're going through. It, it really helps you to become a better person. It shows they really care about the success of the students, you know, and it's showing that, you know, they see what's going on. Most schools, they won't do anything about it. Show that we know that you're struggling, we want to help. Just looking at this and seeing there's staff and there's faculty and there's students all going through this together and having conversations, I think that that's really inspiring. I mean, I think, I, I feel like we've identified some of the glitches and some of the ways that things go wrong, but I think we just need to continue um, working on this so that we can identify how things will go right. Great. Creating an exhibit. Okay. So now I want to dive into how co-design and co-creation showed up throughout this process. Um, and the big ways was that in parallel to this work, uh, the IDEO team was actually collaborating deeply with an interdisciplinary team on Lakeland side of college staff at all levels. Um, and in different departments and different roles, and they were called the Innovation Circle. And they took an IDOU course together over the summer, getting ready for this project. Um, they attended workshops with us, and they prototyped their own solutions, uh, which you can see here. Um, as we were, you know, bringing up these questions and these insights from students, they started implementing in real time some scrappy prototypes. Um, so the first one is a student pantry. This is a place for just-in-time emergency personal care and food items. We often heard from students that they would have these, um, you know, random needs emerge that were unpredictable. And so this was a response to that. Uh, and the staff member that made this actually created a mobile roaming cart so she could bring the pantry items to students rather than requiring students to know where to go for them. Uh, in the middle, Humans of Lakeland, this was a social media campaign that celebrated the stories of all different Lakeland students. Uh, and this was created by the woman pictured here. She had just graduated from Lakeland the year before and she was working in marketing. Uh, and this was really a great experience for her to be on the same team as very senior people at the college who had been there for 20 or 30 years um, and see her ideas prototyped and, and used alongside of theirs. And then the last one, um, this was called Mascots. Uh, and so for many students, math is often the thing that stands in the way between them and graduating and not being able to pass the required math courses. And so one teacher um, recognizing that and recognizing kind of the fear and shame that often comes with math learning, 
uh, have students create mascots to build community and share those fears and, and create a safe to start talking about um, how they could work together to pass their math requirements. And so the critical piece for this innovation circle is that they were given explicit permission as well as resources and time to prioritize this work and show up as leaders and innovators of this internal change that was happening. Uh, and so you saw a lot of them actually featured in the video that they were guiding people through the exhibit and answering questions and really showing up as owners of this work um, in a way that, again, we're designing with and not for. Uh, and so the IDEO team kind of faded into the background in this moment. So we also, at the end of the exhibit, invited everyone, the hundreds of people that came through to basically be part of the innovation circle and to join us as co-designers. Um, we shared with them from the full exhibit and the student journey, we called out six moments that matter, uh, or basically like six points on the journey that really had a lot of impact for students on whether they were able to move forward and keep going or get stuck and stopped on their path. Uh, and each of these moments came with a big, how might we question about being more student-centered. And we invited everyone that participated to read about the moments, hear some of those students' stories, and then add their own ideas for um, what, what could happen. And so you're getting for the first time perspectives from not only people on campus, people off campus, like really dialing into these needs and providing inspiration and ideas for how the school could better serve students. We also know that um, ideas are amazing and we also need to translate them into action. And so we had kind of this commitment called Aquaman at the end of the exhibit where we invited participants to sign um, on this board, a commitment to being more student-centered and setting the default to yes. Uh, oftentimes we found that students heard like, no, I actually can't do that or that's not my department or uh, but you were actually supposed to do it this way. And so we had the provocation, like, what if you defaulted to yes as much as possible? Um, it won't always be possible. It won't always be easy, but it makes a huge difference for students. And so what people were signing here was committing to telling students, yes, you belong here. Yes, I can help you with that. Yes, let's work together on that. Um, and at the end, we said, you know, this is not the end of the exhibit, but it's actually the beginning uh, and the opportunity to start a movement to redesign support at Lakeland. And so having this specific call to action with a really deep alignment on purpose, they had just gone through this experience, they experienced pain points firsthand. Uh, and this was the moment where everyone was invited to be part of the solution. And there were a couple of uh, physical ways that we did that as well. We had these pins that people could take um, with the yes mindset that they wanted to commit to publicly wearing it as a visible sign um, that they were there to help students. And then on the cards, we had some things that they could try to embrace that mindset. So really helping people take action um, and inviting them to be part of what comes next. They also, you, you saw a bit of this in the video as well, people could add their own yes buttons um, and say something else that they were saying yes to. So, 
knowing that we didn't have all the answers, we didn't have all the things that were needed, uh, and inviting community to think of what we missed and make their own. And so we ended this, this was fall of 2018. Um, it's been two and a half years and just want to share some of the stories that have happened since this like big community coming together and call to action to co-design. Uh, and the innovation that's come out of the campus since then has really been incredible. Um, people across campus have done experiments with new processes, with new experiences and new ways of working that two and a half years ago, they would not have thought was possible. Um, one of those is this new process called Verification Plus. That's a more timely financial aid process. This came out of the Student Service Center uh, and they were responding to the insight from students that verifying financial aid is super messy and frustrating for students. Uh, they would turn in their paperwork and it would often take three weeks to go down the assembly line and get the right approvals. Uh, and if any issues came up, they would get a flurry of really confusing emails and it was just super unclear for students and often stood in the way of them registering for classes or getting their textbooks for the semester. And so the Student Service Center decided to experiment with a student-centered solution that looked a lot more like a counseling model. So students would come in and sit down with a financial aid rep who would get to know their situation, walk through any issues and resolve them right there on the spot. So now when students come to verify, um, they're not turned away until to wait for three weeks, but they either leave with very clear next steps of um, what they need to do for their financial aid, or they actually get their financial aid process there on the spot and they can go right to the bookstore and get their textbooks for the semester. Uh, and so definitely a big win for students, but also for staff, they went from really having to bearers of bad news um, to students to being the people that removed doubt and confusion and obstacles for students. Uh, and so this has been a big transformation to the way that things had previously been done. Another example is a course called First Year Experience uh, that all new incoming students take. Um, and Lakeland employees decided to look at, because it's such a pivotal moment in onboarding and in kind of the first touch point that students have with campus, um, they wanted to look at how to make it more relevant and more student-centered. And through talking to students, one of the biggest issues that came up was that this was a one-credit course that had a really expensive textbook. Uh, and this was often a barrier to students and they maybe wouldn't buy the book and then they were, felt like they were behind already from the beginning. And the team working on this developed an open educational resource for anyone teaching the course, which one, allowed faculty to be more supported and designing a course that felt really, really relevant to the direct students who were serving. And then students could get a great learning experience without the cost of the textbook. Um, and so again, things that seemed like out of the control or out of the purview of different individuals, given the call to action to reimagine and redesign the way things work, um, you know, created these opportunities for new ideas to emerge. And then finally, um, this idea of an enlightened navigator program. Uh, when the college first transitioned to online learning, they were really concerned about student engagement, uh, which is directly linked to student retention and student success. And so they really wanted to get a pulse and a better understanding of how students were experiencing 
the pandemic and how the crisis was impacting their lives. Um, they actually looked to the enlightened witness care provider approach that was developed by Kaiser. So analogous inspiration, looking outside of the education space, um, they saw that with this approach, rather than just asking patients about medical symptoms, uh, enlightened providers also ask them about other things in their lives beyond their health condition. So this could be their living situation, past experiences, what's going on with their families. Uh, and research on that program has shown that the care model has led to um, a reduction in doctor office visits and many positive health outcomes. And so the Lakeland leadership team got inspired by this model uh, and the president of Lakeland actually sent out an email and video message to all students with his personal email address, inviting them to reach out directly. Uh, based on their responses, they launched their own prototype of an enlightened navigator program in just five days, which if anyone works in the higher education space or is familiar with it, that is really an unprecedented pace to launch a completely new program, um, especially in a sector that's notorious for regulation and lots of bureaucracy. Um, and with that program, over 130 Lakeland employees from across the campus signed up to provide consistent personal outreach to a group of students. So that was via text message, via phone calls, via emails, um, to really be super nimble and responsive to what students needed in that moment. And so zooming out a little bit uh, to the, the full Lakeland story, um, there, in my mind, I had three kind of big takeaways when we think about co-design in this context. The first is to align on purpose. Um, when you're inviting others in as co-designers, it's really important that they have a shared understanding of what the goal is and the why we're here. In this case, the exhibit was a really big aha moment for stakeholders to like step back and see the totality of the system uh, and feel the why and kind of the, the urgency behind doing this work. The second I touched on a little bit is just giving permission. Oftentimes people feel it's not their job or they don't have the space to experiment and try a new way of working. Um, and so giving that permission to be part of the innovation circle um, granted people with ownership and agency to develop and try these prototypes. And then finally, incentivizing desired behaviors. Uh, it's really important when you do invite folks to co-design that you celebrate the experimentation and you celebrate learning from failure uh, and you celebrate the risks that people took. Um, and in Lakeland's case, this has really led to a much more nimble, creative, experimental and resilient organization. All right, so that was Lakeland. And now I'm going to share a bit of a different story um, called Bendable. And this is about co-designing with an entire city of 100,000 people. And so this story is about South Bend, Indiana. Um, and South Bend is a community that has really taken a lot of hits over the last 50 years. Um, the closure of auto factories in and around town has led to a lot of job loss. And now in the time of automation, many of the jobs that are at risk uh, are right in this area in Indiana. And so this is a, a real threat that weighs on the minds of citizens of South Bend and city government service providers. 
Um, we also know that the resilience and capacity to navigate new ways of working will rely on continuous lifelong skill building, lifelong learning uh, as the new norm and the, the way to be able to stay current in the job market. And so on this project, the Drucker Institute uh, approached former Mayor Pete of South Bend, uh, the city's public library system and IDEO with the question of, can we turn South Bend into a city of lifelong learning? Uh, how do we design a learning platform for an entire city? And so uh, we, similar to the Lakeland approach, did a bunch of research with South Bend residents, community organizations, employers, all different stakeholders in this kind of work-life job ecosystem in South Bend. Um, and we found actually a very similar uh, insight emerged at the city level here is that South Bend was not under-resourced. They had tons of great programs and community colleges uh, and even a renowned university, but it was underconnected. And so this made us wonder how might we create a network system that could connect people to the existing resources that were a good fit for their needs. And so in this case, um, the way that co-design showed up was really from the beginning of this project. Um, we knew that we needed to get closer to the needs of residents in real time. Uh, we went back and forth many times to South Bend to interview people that live there uh, and ended up creating what we called a community connector program. This would allow us to get authentic real-time feedback from way more people than we ever could have reached just our team uh, going and traveling to South Bend. And so what this looked like, you can see a little diagram on the left here. Uh, we hired a research coordinator on the ground to oversee this full co-design program. Um, and then we trained a group of community leaders. So people that were well known that could help us understand what perspectives we were missing, that could gather a group of people to give feedback. Um, and we hired them to be design researchers with us. And so every Sunday we would send them um, our design ideas and those could look like prototypes or sketches or um, you know, different mock-ups of experiences. And they would get together a group of their peers and community members to give us feedback. Uh, it was super important to remove ourselves from this conversation and really create the space for that trust that inherently exists in the community um, to, to help us design something that would truly work for them and, and the people that they were close with. When we thought about um, this community design approach, we really wanted to make sure that we focused on equity and that we were getting representative voices from across the city. And so in order to do that, we use census data to map South Bend based on income and race and get, get an understanding of different neighborhoods there, as well as all of the existing resource organizations, which you can see as kind of the little circles on this map. Um, those are things like Goodwill, libraries, churches, rec centers, places that people are already going for uh, lifelong learning support. Um, and once we had this map, we were able to reach out to these organizations and ask them to nominate people in that local sub-community, um, people who were well-connected and had a large peer network that they would be able to convene um, different folks to give feedback. And so 
we made sure that the community connectors were physically spread out across the city because a lot of these meetings were happening in person um, and that they run into the diversity of perspectives and people that are in South Bend. And so the amazing thing about this process is that we really could check our own assumptions uh, and biases almost in real time by getting this feedback from people on the ground, uh, letting us know very bluntly sometimes what would and wouldn't work for them. Um, we heard things like the community has abundant resources, but then we learned from our community connectors that many of them actually didn't trust the resources that did exist. Um, we also heard that there's tons of job, job training programs, um, but we heard from the community connectors that people that did those programs actually didn't find that they always led to jobs. So they really helped us get um, kind of an inside look under the hood of, of what we were hearing and seeing. It, it also led to our greatest insight on this project, um, which was that the advice the community trusted most was the advice that they got from one another and from their peers. Um, and so when we thought about designing this lifelong learning platform that we called Bendable, uh, we wanted to take advantage of the greatest asset that the community already had the wisdom and the knowledge that is contained in the people that live there. Uh, and so this made us ask the question, how might we leverage the trust that the community has in one another to support lifelong learning? And so we ended up designing Bendable as um, kind of a megaphone for the wisdom that already existed in the city. After six months, um, we, launched this community-powered lifelong learning platform uh, with the main value proposition that it connects people with opportunities to learn from and with each other, uh, especially opportunities that prepare people for the changing nature of work. The platform is totally free uh, and can be accessed both in the local library and also from people's phones, uh, and it connects people with the learning that they need, whether that's you know technology to stay current in their job or learning that they want, like cooking healthy meals or, or more personal learning interests. The learning can come in a lot of forms. Um, it could be a YouTube video or a TED talk or a class at the community college or an online course. Uh, but what they all have in common is that they come from trusted peers and locals that are sharing their knowledge. And again, this is really a unique advantage in a place like South Bend where people trust their neighbor or their barber more than some commercial for a national brand. Um, they really want to see that local representation. And so now I'm going to share a couple of the key features of Bendable that came directly from the Community Connector program uh, and this, this co-design that was built into our product development. The first is Community Connections, uh, Collections, sorry. Um, we know that learning and motivation is inherently social. Uh, and one of the connect that we worked with shared this quote uh, about representation that really solidified this insight for us. Um, he shared representation is everything, seeing someone representing people in my community and telling me things and being on an engine like this makes me feel comfortable. Um, so really building on that trust and the security that people when they see others in their community and want to learn from them. What this looked like from a feature perspective is that we end up creating um, learning playlists basically that 
local people could create a, a playlist based on their experience and people that were interested in learning from them could then sign up and subscribe to their playlist. And so you could think of a high school economics teacher, for example, might create a collection about opening your first credit card. A hiring manager might create a collection about acing the job interview. Um, a pastor might make a collection about being a more patient parent. And so again, you can see kind of the, the scope of skills from job skills to life skills to personal interest uh, being represented by the community. And so what was great about this and what really resonated with folks is that it means that learning something new is kind of synonymous with getting to know someone in your community even better, which is something that South Bend residents care deeply about. The next um, kind of key feature is based on some meta feedback that we actually received about how unfamiliar some of the digital tools that we were using for our research uh, were for some participants, which told us a lot about um, kind of digital comfort and what the app and product ended up needing to look like. And so one of the community connectors that we worked with works at an after school program mentoring high school students. And he sent this course is actually a text message that he sent to me after our uh, onboarding session. Um, and he said, please be advised that everybody is not technically savvy. This process was not simple. And what we had to do in this session was download an app called DScout to do research, download the PayPal app so we could give, um, we could compensate them for the research. And then we also sent an email with a PDF of instructions. Uh, and it was, it was a lot for someone to, to figure out how to do, especially someone who is not necessarily super comfortable with technology. Um, and so his direct feedback was really a reminder that even in our research process, when we're thinking about coding, we need to design for different levels of comfort with technology. Uh, and so how that traded into what the product looked like is we rethought what search and browse would look like and really simplified it for people to get connected to what they were looking for. Uh, and so instead of a typical search bar, we had them complete the prompt, I want to, uh, and just have a really simple way to focus on what you are trying to do and learn. Uh, and so they might answer things like, I want to sharpen my work skills, or I want to manage my money. Uh, and we really saw this as an opportunity to create an accessible tech product that teaches digital literacy and fluency um, by having people use it rather than requiring some baseline digital literacy to even be able to get on the product. Uh, and then the final thing is being really transparent about content recommendations. Um, one of the prototypes that we created was testing how comfortable people felt getting redirected to a third party website because all of the learning content existed on other platforms like YouTube or, um, you know, link out to other courses that they might take. And so one of the community connector groups clicked on that button. And then when they got to a third party site, they were really worried about you know, what information is getting collected? Is this secure? How's it going to be used? Can I trust this site? Uh, and they shared the feedback. Nowadays, there's so many different scam artists out there. And so hearing that fear um, led us to really focus on transparent recommendations of where content is coming from. So before you link out to something, say, here's where you're headed and why to give um, people and users that, that sense of security. 
And so these are just three of many of the examples of how co-design actually shaped what the ultimate product looked like that we created. And I am happy to share, this is a um, live bendable website. It launched in South Bend at the start of the pandemic. So just about a year ago, um, not exactly the launch that we had planned for, but um, nonetheless, it has been accessed by more than a third of the city's residents. Um, and those community curated content collections are still the primary draw of people using it. And with community at the heart of our design work, so many residents uh, have shared that Bendable really feels like a product that was made for them. Um, it was truly a grassroots effort involving so many people in the community, not some tech solution brought from the outside and imposed on the community. And so a few takeaways from this story. Um, the first is when you think about co-design, it's there's a big difference between considering input from people and then actually shifting and allowing those people to be owners of the process. Uh, and so in this case, rather than just ask for feedback on some ideas, we really invited the community connectors to be owners of the design and to feel um, like, like they were part of making this product with us. The second is that it's okay to not have the answers. Uh, initially, we went into this thinking that the role of the platform would be kind of the expert to curate these learning resources. Uh, but we quickly learned that people did not want that. They actually wanted to learn with and alongside their peers. Um, so that led us to, to really shift how we thought this uh, would show up for them. And then finally, leverage community assets. Um, we designed this to be owned and managed by the local library, which was already a trusted space offering lifelong learning opportunities. Uh, and so to make sure that it had staying power and, and could be integrated in the community, um, we plugged into some uh, really strong network that was already happening. And so I'll just share a couple of quick additional tactical resources that support these stories. Um, one is for global co-design. Um, I talked about some in-depth research methods where you really get to know people beyond interviews. And obviously that looks different in the virtual world, but a couple of tools that we've used are DScout, which I mentioned for Bendable. This is a diary app um, that essentially people can give you real-time video feedback as they're looking at prototypes or you could have them go out and do an activity and send feedback and that kind of replaces some of the in-home interviews that um, we would typically do. We've also used WhatsApp a lot as a tool for virtual workshops, um, a tool that people are already comfortable with kind of meeting people where they are and inviting them to do text-based responses or they can share pictures or audio uh, and that can be a really great outlet for co-design. The second is capturing ideas. Um, when we are co-designing, it's really important to capture thoughts and ideas visually as part of the experience. And so Google Slides actually works super well. Um, if you think about them as kind of a collaborative whiteboard, we've made worksheets and different research activities there. Um, we've also used some collaborative tools like Miro and Figma that essentially recreate like the whiteboard in the virtual space for everyone to add ideas to. On that note, uh, when we work in person, we often surround our walls and like our physical project space with photos from research and assets and pieces of inspiration um, to really surround ourselves and immerse ourselves in whatever challenge we're working on. 
Uh, and when you know, you're inviting people to be part of a co-design experience, it's important to have that central place to capture and share knowledge and ideas. Uh, and there's lots of tools that you can do that as well in the virtual world um, to invite that real-time feedback and help people get plugged into what's happening. And then finally, for anyone that's looking for more kind of explicit tools and methods for co-design, uh, the co-designing schools toolkit, I would highly recommend. Um, you can see the link there. These tools were designed for the education context um, to kind of help build the capacity of school communities to uh, ensure every student is future ready, but all of these could be applied to other sectors and industries as well. So I invite you to take a look there. And with that, I believe I am at time. And so I just wanna say thank you all. Uh, we didn't get to Q&A today, but uh, really appreciate you listening and I, I hope it was helpful. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for joining us and sharing these innovative co-design principles. Uh, thank you also to our captioner, Sherry, our IT help and support from Zach, and our operational support from Alex Carrier-Hitchcox and the USM Career and Employment Hub. And of course, thank you once again to our sponsors. Our closing keynote is coming up in less than 48 hours, and we're excited to welcome award-winning ABC News anchor, and New York Times bestseller, uh, author Dan Harris, who will be interviewed by USM President Cummings on how we can best leverage mindfulness as leaders, especially in times of great disruption. I'm Professor Richard Billadu, and it's been a pleasure sharing this year's Hussey Leadership Institute with you, and I look forward to seeing you, seeing you on Wednesday for this year's closing event. I hope everyone has a wonderful afternoon. Take care. <laughs>